for just about everything for the outdoors. Go to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Today is August 30th, 2022, and today's guest is none other than Jake Bush. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and today's episode is 233. Today's guest is the Jake Bush, and uh, we're going to get right into it because, man, I'll tell you what, Jake has done a lot of podcasts, you know, probably 40 or 50 so of podcasts over the years, and um, I didn't want this to be like a regurgitation. Uh, I, it, you know, some, some, bullet points or some topics in here might be, but I hope I break it down a little bit farther than a lot of guys have, or a lot of podcast hosts, you know, may have, because I just, uh, I want to get into his head. I mean, I want to know, I want everybody else to learn. And I'm just excited to talk to Jake. I've done a podcast with him before, um, kind of kept in touch throughout the last year or so. And, uh, I mean, if you, he's on the rise, man, he is, um, if you don't know Jake Bush's name, you, you must be living under a, lot, a rock because <laughs> he's been doing some things at a pretty high level on some public land and uh, in Ohio and in Kansas. And uh, man, this guy is just, I don't know if I've ever met anybody that's as detailed as he is and, you know, has attention to detail as he does. You know, we get right into into this podcast and how detailed he is when he's entering a stand and some things that he thinks about is just like, man, there's he's he's a one percenter. Like not a lot of guys think about the stuff that he thinks about. So today's a good one. But before we do get into it, uh, I want to talk about like right now, you know, 
like I said, today's Tuesday, August 30th. So, like, I mean, we're here. I mean, Kentucky's starting here this Saturday. And, you know, a lot of guys are killing deer in, like, Tennessee. And there's states that are open, Nebraska and stuff like that. So, hopefully you guys are out there chasing them and, you know, trying to stay cool. And Because <laughs> I know it's hotter than the hinges of Haiti out there in a lot of places and a lot of bugs and everything. So, I'm actually loading up right now to, well, getting ready to load up to head to Kentucky. So, I'm going down with my boss, Mark Peterson, and his dad, Earl. Um, we're going to be there for you know, probably four or five days. Um, I'm pretty excited about it. We're going to be in deer camp with a lot of other guys and, um, it's going to be really cool. It's my first time down in Kentucky filming, you know, a velvet hunt or even being in Kentucky filming anything other than turkey hunting this, this last spring that, that, which didn't go very well at all, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, probably a lot of chiggers, probably a lot of ticks going to be hotter than hell, but Hey, I'm looking forward to it, getting back into the whitetail swing, and this will be uh, this will be good. And then right after that, we come home. I'll be home for a few days, and then Mark and I head to Kansas, and I'm going to film Mark on an early season um, hunt, early season muzzleloader hunt. So I just got sidetracked. Early season muzzleloader hunt in Kansas, so that's going to be pretty cool as well. And I don't know if a lot, I've, I've said it before and, um, I want to mention some things. Mark, my boss, Mark has his own podcast It's called the journey within podcast. I want you guys to go over there and check it out. It's different than mine. You know, it's not all whitetail. It's his experience. Like all the trips he goes on. It's pretty cool. I actually host some episodes in it and you know, you'll hear me a little bit more because when Mark can't do an episode, I host one and, and, uh, it's, it's a really neat concept and he talks to a lot of different a lot of a lot of different people about different trips and experiences and animals that he chases and everything so it's really neat so go check that out but uh let's get into the partners real quick helix broadheads i got a code for you guys guys go pick up your single bevel broadheads right now and get a sharpener use code fall hx10 uh check out to save some money and uh, go check them out at helixbroadheads.com Next, Latitude Tree Saddles. Uh, don't have a code for them right now, but uh, go check them out. Because if you guys want, you know, if you guys want to up your mobile game, get lighter, get more efficient, quicker, you know, quicker, efficient, kind of same same realm there. If you guys want some lightweight stuff, go check out Latitude Outdoors. I am using the sat or uh, the Method Two this year, and I've been screwing around with the X-wing platform. I absolutely love it. Um, yeah, I, I just have nothing bad to say about these guys. Go check them out, latitudeoutdoors.com. Get your order in because things are not, I mean, things are not going to be in stock, not just for saddles and stuff like that, but I'm talking about arrows and packs and other, I mean, everybody's buying stuff right now. So so go get your stuff right now. Next is Exodus Trail Cams, you know, for exclusive podcast listeners right now. And honestly, I think it ends tomorrow. So the 31st, use Summer Bucks right now to go save some money on some Exodus renders. Those guys are putting out so much content. Go to their YouTube channels, check out their podcasts and everything. Love what they're doing. Check them out at ExodusOutdoorGear.com. Next is Vector Arrows. If you guys need some arrows, get them going right now. Use code FALL10 to save you some money. Go check them, out, check them out, VectorCustomShop.com. And last, but certainly not least, Garmin Bow Sights. Go to Garmin.com and check out these bow sights. The A1i, the A1 is the is the Gen 1, and then the A1i, and then the A1i Pro. Go check them out. You're not going to regret it. I can tell you that right now. These things will make you a better archer. 
and they just take all the guesswork out of it. I love these things. Go check them out, Garmin.com. All right, with all that being said, let's get into this interview with Jake Bush. Thank you guys, everybody out there, for all the all the listens, all the downloads, and everything. Please go to iTunes, leave that five-star rating, and leave a little written review. It is always greatly appreciated. And here is this interview with Jake. All right, we are back for another episode of the Fall Podcast. And today, I've got a familiar voice on. And uh, him and I were just talking about it. He's well into the 40s or 50s with podcast episodes, I'm going to bet. And honestly, I probably would have said a little bit more than that. But uh, without further ado, Jake Bush. Jake, how you, how's it going tonight, man? I'm doing great, Aaron. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, you know, and I've, you know, we've been texting back and forth a little bit here and then, you know, talking. I just don't want this to be rinse and repeat. <laughs> I want to hopefully some questions I have or some different ones or maybe worded a little different so it's not the same as the last one you did. So um, we'll see. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, keeping it fresh sounds good. So I'm excited to see where this goes. Heck yeah, man. Well, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the introductions out because I think. If anybody is a serious bow hunter or hunter in general, they should know who the hell you are by the by this time, I would think. And um, you are a household name now. And dude, I just love chatting with you on this stuff and your wealth of knowledge. And uh, I've got some questions, selfish questions today, some questions that I want to know. And then I've actually got some questions from listeners that uh, we'll get into a little bit as well. But they're all good, man. And and. Uh, I think with these podcasts, and correct me if I'm wrong, or you might not get this vibe or whatnot, but like us as deer hunters, I feel like everybody's looking for that A plus B equals big buck or buck. You know what I mean? They're looking for that black and white answer, and there really isn't. Is it? Is that a vibe you get when you when you do a lot of these podcasts? Yeah, it is, and I I think you're right. There's no definitive answer for any of this stuff. You know, it's all going to be dependent on. Uh, your individual style and your location on, you know, the specific deer you're after year from year, it's, it's constantly evolving. And I think that, you know, what I've started to do with listening to podcasts, because I listen to a ton of podcasts, whether it's with Byron Horton or Heath Cisco or Andy May or Dan Infald or any of those guys, what I really focus on is like trying to find the one light bulb moment in the podcast that kind of just like sparks something. And I'll take that and I'll kind of run with it and I'll throw it in you know, my bag of tricks and then I'll go and I'll try to put it to use and then I evolve from that. So, so that's what I'm looking for more than anything. Um, but yeah, I, I hope some people can take some good things away from this one. They for sure will. And honestly, I, I told you there was going to be a first question, but you just preempted something or struck something in my head that I want to talk about with a guy like yourself and how is it successful you've been and on, you know, you're, you're part of that elite company in my opinion. So like guys like you and Andy may, like how you guys are always learning. So let's hypothetical situation here. Let's say you're listening to a podcast with either Heath or Dan or whoever, and you get a light bulb moment, what, whatever that might be, how are you implementing that into a scenario? you you know, with yourself, uh, how is it like, you know, I got to get, it might be something like a train feature or something like that to where, you know, you get, I get, do you have to get out in the timber and figure it out? Or, you know, I know that's a broad question, but what's the process that you're using to really take it through the litmus test to be like, okay, this is how it's going to work for me, you know, cause it's not copy and paste. So how do you, what's that process look like for you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, 
So for me, I'm a very hands-on learner and I have like a little case of OCD going, I think, where I have to try things and verify them in multiple different situations to really believe in it. So I'll, you know, I'll hear like something that Andy says, right? And it just, that's something that might even be a very small detail of one of his podcasts and it'll trigger like this light bulb over the last 10 years of the series of events that I've had in the whitetail woods where I can say, oh my gosh, like I have 30 occurrences where this, you know, is clicking in my head and I've got to go try this, you know, whether it's in a scouting situation, whether it's in a hunting situation, whether it's archery form or, you know, it could be a hundred different things that involves whitetails, but I have to be hands-on with it. Like I'm not the kind of person that can believe in something regardless of who says it, unless I know it's going to work for me. And I think part of that is like understanding that I'm not going to be able to just take what they said and apply it in the way that they're applying it necessarily, but I have to find my own, my own way to apply that specific thing to my bag of tricks, basically. Yep. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. Like for me, seeing as believing verification is like, you know what I mean? Like not to be original with the movie quote or anything, but like seeing is believing. I have to verify that there, you know, this is just, there might, there needs to be a deer that I want to chase in this section for me to want to do it. Does that make sense? Like, that's not like a tactic, but it's like, I need to see that. And then once I get verification, I'm like, okay, let's go. But that could be with anything. Um, you know, even like if, if I hear you talk about something like a leeward ridge or how a deer, you know, reacts in a bowl with wind and thermals and stuff like that, like I have to go in there and, and, and just kind of throw myself into the fire. And if I screw up, I screw up, but then I learn from it too. So it's like, is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, exactly. And there's so many things to take away from what you just said too, you know, like it's, uh, it's, it's believing in yourself, but it's also the ability to not care about failing. You know, like if yes. you, you can't worry about the failure side of it, if you're trying something new like that, because they would drive you crazy. Like you're going to always revert back to your tried and true methods and you're never going to learn and evolve if you're fearing that failure where you just have to accept that it could happen. There's learning opportunities that can come out of those failures and that overall you're going to keep moving forward. Like that's such a big part of it. And that's one of the biggest gaps that I think I see and people that ask me questions about like really uh, about like the early season betting things specifically is because they're so worried about like bumping a deer. They're so worried about being on the wrong bed or the wrong scraper. Hey, I, you know, I want to hide, I want to hunt this white Oak, but this red Oak flat could be hot over here. So I'm not sure how to go about it. And it's like, just, you got to, at some point you got to trust your gut and go for it and not fear the failure. And you're going to learn and evolve from that. And the next year you're going to come out a little bit better. That's gold, dude. That is gold because that is something that I've been trying to get over personally for the last couple of years is like, just go stop, stop overthinking things and just, you're not going to know unless you do it and, and verify it for yourself. And it, it might take three times to do something before you're like, okay, this actually works, but I need to tweak it a little bit. Like, I feel like all these podcasts we listen to or, you know, everybody's talking about the successes. Everybody's talking like, oh, I had this encounter with this giant deer, this big deer that I was chasing, and he did this because of this. We're not talking about enough of the failures and and figuring out how to how to capitalize and tweak a little bit to to make them work. You know what I mean? Like you, even though you're elite company and just like with Heath and Dan and all those guys, you guys fail. I fail a lot. We fail more than we succeed. 
You know what I mean? But we don't talk about them. And I think we should actually get into them today a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. No, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more, man. Well, first and foremost, let's. I do want to start early season. We'll get to the failures, but I do want to start early season where, you know, where right now you and I are recording this. We are, gosh, I can't, are we, we're in August. We're in latter part of August. So, I mean, we're getting tight here. Kentucky's starting in like two or three weeks. Um, you guys are starting at the end of September and then a lot of states are October 1st. So let's get into uh, a scenario where you are seven days out from season. Okay. You've done, I mean, everybody knows you do a lot of off season scouting, a lot of, you know, spring scouting, you put a lot of miles on, um, you've probably got the buck pinpointed that you're looking for. Um, I want to ask you a hypothetical. Let's say you did all the spring scouting, um, you know, coming into season, you get a picture of the buck you want. Okay. Just, just like one picture one day using, you know, one of the setups that you have, um, in the summer. So, you know, he's there, you know, he's good. Are you going to try to go in and hunt that deer right off the rip only off that one picture? Like knowing he's there, you're just going to trust the spot. Are you going to trust the spot and how, you know, it's worked in the past. Are you going to go right in there and do that? Yes and no. Okay. I wish I had a more <laughs> definitive answer than that. Yep. Um, it's really going to depend on a lot of different factors. If it was a recent photo that I got, like, let's say a week out from the opener and I was in there pulling that camera, I checked the card, he's on it, and I'm verifying a food source and a scrape like in that moment then yes, absolutely, I'm going to take a shot at that because I have pretty good intel a week out. And I feel like I can put myself in a situation where I can, you know, I, in these areas, I'll have the majority of the food sources located and the bedding based on those. And I have ways of traversing through these areas where I can kind of inspect those different food sources. Like I can go to the, if I need to, if I don't have all of the intel that I would like to have, which is kind of, you know, the example that you said, where I've got like one picture, I can start, like, let's say on the the furthest downwind I can get on the furthest food source. And then I can start working upwind, checking those food sources. And then the moment that I find the hot food source, I know how to hunt that based on that specific situation. And I'll take a shot at it. But yes, in general, it only takes one picture for me to be really interested in targeting that deer just because I really do believe in my scouting. I believe in my thought process, I believe in the food sources that I'm finding and the bedding areas that I'm finding and the tactics that go into that based on evolving throughout the years where I believe in all of that enough to be confident enough to take the, uh, take the shot basically. Okay. So where are you typically setting up your cameras, you know, in the summer leading into season? Is it an on like, you know, acorn flats is on, uh, hub scrapes. Like where are you typically putting those in the positions where you can go in and check them? coming into season right off the rip to be able to like, okay, this is where I need to be or not be. Yep. So I don't intentionally run cameras on food sources very often. Uh, unintentionally, like if there's, you know, I can think of a system off the top of my head where I've got a bunch of white oak flats that kind of um, jut out off this ridge and there's community scrapes on the ridge side of those flats so they actually have to hit the scrape and then go to feed on those flats um and it's all within you know 20 to 50 yards and so that's kind of like on a food source i guess 
But in general, I'm running them on the hub scrapes down in the bottom or on the secondary hubs, which are like the ones you'll have your main hub down in the bottom. And then as you follow the drainages up the ridge side, you'll have sub ridges that kind of do the same thing. And it's like a micro hub. And those will generally have pretty good scrapes and travel routes through them. I'll run cameras there to check those. And then it's, you know, every once in a while, I'll run a camera on like a, like if I have a bedding area and they're going through a specific terrain feature to a food source, I'll run a camera there that I can verify pretty easily as well. Um, so yeah, in, in general, I'm running them. The ones, the ones that I really care about are going to be in those hubs and those deer, I'm targeting those deer in those areas because they set up a specific way where they kind of dump down into that hub and then they would go out along their way to whatever food source they want. So, you know, out of all the land around here, I could go probably chase a lot of really good bucks, but I try to chase bucks in my home state under that one circumstance to say, okay, they bed here, they have a hub scrape down below, and then they go out to their food source, whatever direction that may be. Um, I'm trying to really fine tune that to make that process a little bit uh, more efficient come season. And I'm, I'm really checking my cameras right up until the opener, you know, like I'll, I have no problem checking cameras at my best spot two to three days before the opener, you know, I'll, I'll go in, I'll check that camera on the hub scrape for, you know, it'd take me 10 or 15 seconds to swap a new card in it and take that card and get out of there and leave minimal scent. You know, I'll be really concerned with my access that time of year, as far as I'm not going to blow through a bedding area to check a card. I'm going to try to access it the same way that I would hunt that spot. And I try to set up a lot of my cameras so I'm never crossing the main trail that's at that scrape. Like I'll walk up a creek bottom or something like that and then walk up a steep ridge, check the cam, and then drop right back down. So unless that deer like goes over to that specific tree to smell that tree for some reason, generally I'm pretty safe with my camera poles. So I'll go in, I'll pull them, I'll get out of there, and then I'll formulate that data even a day or two before season, which is like, you know, that real-time intel is, is how I'm trying to be the most efficient on that first sit because I was in there two days ago in some of these spots. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And the, you know, what triggers those secondary hubs, like you talked, I capitalized on my Ohio deer last year on a secondary hub and it was up a drainage on a, on a micro flat, like this thing was, you know, not very big. And when I, I did, you know, when I scouted that there was like nine open scrapes on that flat and everything dropped off you know, even more. And, and there, there was a couple reasons why I picked that spot. And obviously there was like a whole bunch of fresh sign right then. But the other thing was if I would drop down another hundred feet, I'm in the bottom and the thermals to me, I didn't think I could get in that bottom without screwing anything that might already be bedded down in there. Cause the bottom was really thick. It had some thick areas in it. Um, so the thermals I figured were going to kill me on that. So what my plan was, is just set up on this secondary hub, see what happened, you know, for the next couple of days and then adjust, like kind of, kind of really just ever so slightly move into the bottom where I had to be, or just up a little bit. So those, those bottom hubs for you, are you afraid of those thermals, you know, with the wind coming over on any direction and kind of creating a vacuum and, and and swirling around are you worried about those at all or are you using cell cams in those bottoms no i wish i could use more cell cams um, i know some people 
have their thoughts about that. In Ohio, we don't really have the option in a lot of the areas I hunt just because the hills are so steep and deep, you know, like five to 600 foot floor to ceiling where you just don't have signal down in those bottoms. So I could only run a cell cam like on top of the ridge to catch either rut activity or like a transitioning buck midday based on like a, a wind switch or something, which I do a little bit. But uh, down in the bottoms overall, I there's a bunch of different options with wind and with vacuums and with the thermals and everything like that. I really try to get into these spots and get intimate with the wind in certain situations where you know, I'll wind map these spots every time I'm in there and keep a log of that based on specific wind direction, based on leaf cover, based on temperature, based on velocity. Because what I've noticed in a lot of these steep uh, drainages down here is if you have too strong of an overhead wind, let's say your ridge runs north to south, you have two points that jut out to the east and in the middle there's a drainage that's dumping out to the east. So if you have a west wind, that leeward ridge is, is leeward, is leeward obviously with the wind blowing over it. Um, so if you have like a, you know, five to eight mile an hour wind, a lot of times what I notice is my wind will blow out of that drainage. Perfect. As long as it's draining the same way that the wind is blowing. But if you get too strong of a wind, too high of a, of a velocity, it'll actually create like a vacuum on that whole drainage and suck all your wind, your scent right up to the front of that drainage where that buck's bedded. And I've had them, you know, blow at me from. 400, 500 yards. And I'm like, how, like, what could possibly be going on in this spot and throw some milkweed. And I'm like, wow, it's like a vacuum just sucking right up through there, even right. though my wind was right. And it's forecasted to be right. And my thermals are dropping. So it's just, every spot's going to be situational. I would say that overall, I'm probably a little bit more aggressive than maybe I should be. And that gets me in trouble every once in a while. And, uh, 2020, that got me in trouble on just a giant typical buck down here because i had that vacuum effect and it, it cost me um but yeah overall i would say that it's just it's going to be really situational i try not to hunt those bottoms of those hubs on a crosswind so if it runs east west i try not to hunt it on like a south or even a southwest just because i don't want that swirling wind effect i just have better luck when it's running directly out of the drainage okay so if you have a bottom running east and west and you get a wind out of the east or out of the west then you're gonna hunt it but if but if it's crossing out of the north or south you won't then yeah and so all of the spots that i'm targeting down here i fine-tuned to either have drainages running to the north or to the east and that's because our winds are normally either a south or a west so i can access from the head of that creek from that drainage up the creek or up the drainage with the wind in my face and then as i get set up and the thermals start to pull down it just helps my wind even more so i'm not i'm never putting myself in the wrong facing drainage just because i don't want to deal with the consequences of the wind and everything else i got you okay there's so much to that stuff man i feel like it's so touchy down there is that i mean you and I've watched all your videos. So like when you're entering a spot, it just seems like on video anyways, it's just at a snail's pace. It's like so methodical and thought out. I mean, I feel like you have to be that way, don't you? Yeah, you do. And especially where a lot of these really mature deer are setting up and bedding, they're bedding in situations where you only have like one option to go in there and kill them. And a lot of times like where I'm hunting, you know, they'll find a way to get into the corners of this public where you really can't even access into it without busting them out of the ridge they're on. And so you have to get really crafty, which is why like I'll find 
you know, really thick briar patch on the windward side of the ridge that is basically across the hub from him on a lot, in a lot of situations. And I'll try to just like crawl through that. Like I can't stand up because he could see from my waist up. So I'll just like stay really low and take hours and just crawl through that ridge and then try to get down in the bottom and J hook around on him and set up on him without him seeing me. And that's what I did last year. I had to do, you know, if I would have stood up at any point in time in those briars, that buck bedded on the other ridge could have theoretically seen where I was at. So I just crawled and you don't really see that on the video, but I crawled and I, I got to the point where I could walk down this ridge and get blown out by that buck where I could basically dive off a cliff 20 or 30 feet. And so I decided to grab onto any shrubs or, or little saplings I could and basically like shimmy down this cliff. And that was the only way that I could access that spot without busting him out. So I had to go so far out of my way to border the private all the way around, make a big circle around and go through those priors and then go down that cliff, cross a pond, come up over a ridge and then J hook in on him. And like, I just feel like that's, that's how those deer get killed because they never expect that. You know, yeah. they've never seen a hunter access from that direction. The private land doesn't get hunted. And so they have no pressure coming from that direction. So if you can figure out how to be crafty with your access, you can get in some really good situations. And I mean, if you watch the video, that deer gets up out of his bed and he acts like it's August. He just like comes down to that scrape. Like it's no big deal at all. And got shot at 12 yards. Jeez. Can can you describe like break that scenario down like using directions like I can't like the ditch was running north and south and I came in from this direction and then you know can you do that real quick because I feel like a lot of people when they listen to these they're trying to like run it through their head like okay if the ditch is running north and south he's coming in from the you know x direction and he's j hooking back to the north like can you explain that a little bit so everybody can kind of draw an audio picture yeah so. This spot is a little bit different. You know, I was talking about earlier how I always hunt like the, the leeward side and then the ridges or the drainages that face north or east, right? And that's what this primarily is. But because I'm always looking for like that extra little feature or like the one thing in that chess match that might, you know, help me win, what I ended up finding in the spot was actually on the windward side of this ridge was also very good bedding cover. And they would bet over there anytime we had like a north or an east wind. So with this location, the bedding for the two different winds was only a few hundred yards apart. And I was actually running a camera on top of that ridge. And I caught not that buck, but a, a, another good buck crossing that uh, top of that ridge on wind shifts throughout the day because it's so thick. And it, there was a scrape up top and it would hit that. So that's what tipped me off to this early summer. I was like, ooh, you know what? I could target a, a target like a mature buck in this area on either wind direction if i could figure out my access to get into there so instead of hunting the typical leeward for a west wind i was actually hunting the windward for a west but on that day it was leeward because we had a northeast wind okay so everybody everybody listening leeward is obviously opposite of way the way the wind is blowing correct like that's what you're talking about yeah, it's the the wind is blowing over the ridge. Yep. Like, let's say the ridge runs north-south. The wind's blowing from the west, so it's blowing over the leeward ridge, which would be the eastern-facing ridge. Yep, and can you explain to everybody, like, I'm just trying to break it down farther. Like, why are you hunt, why would you typically hunt the leeward side? So I know a lot of guys that have killed deer on both sides of the ridge, and I think that you can. 
I have found more success with my own style and my own tactics targeting that leeward side. And it's, I, I tend to find more mature bucks there, but I think it's because I focus more on those ridges. But yep. the big thing for me is that access. I'm looking for the drop down at night out to whether it's an oak flat or private ag or a clear cut, whatever that may be. And I really like that access with the wind in my face midday. That just, it makes me feel good. And even if the thermals are pulling up that hill hard to his bed, I know that if I have a, you know, 10 to 12 mile an hour west wind, I can generally cheat that thermal enough, that thermal pull enough to where it's not blowing in his bed and he'll circle down and I can shoot him. So that's why I'm focusing on those areas. Um, the way that this spot sets up is the ridge runs, the main ridge runs north-south for the most part, but it kind of makes like two separate U's. So there's a U that faces to the southwest, and then there's a U, which is the other hub that faces to the northeast. So on any west wind or south wind, he's based out of the other ridge, but he's still coming up over top of this ridge a lot of times to go to a different field. It just depends on really the the night or the if one field got cut or the other one didn't. And they're traveling really far to these fields, so there's a lot of food sources in between that that you can target, which is what I was kind of setting up on. So, you know, if he was bedded on the other side with a south wind, my thought process was I was going to access from the other side of the property and I was going to access up that drainage, like I was telling you, wind in my face and target him going to that, target that deer going to the other food source. But because I had a northeast wind, I decided I was going to give this other hub a shot. And uh, what tipped me off to this as well was a week before season, I went in and checked a camera on that hub scrape and he had hit it in daylight within a couple of days. And it was on a northeast wind. And so I was kind of, you know, the wheels are spinning in my head. So the way that I had to, so he's bedded on a southwest facing slope in a little briar patch. He's facing southwest. He's got a northeast wind for the day. So it's just like your typical wind blowing over a ridge and he's on the leeward side. That's how I'm playing this spot. So I had to access this spot because of the way the private sets up from the north. But he's bedded on kind of like, you know, he's he's bedded on the south side of that slope, but he the north part of that ridge is behind his back. So I'm actually accessing from behind this deer. So I had to access from the northwest as far as I could go. And I had to walk a boundary for, it was a long ways, like almost a mile and a half. I had to walk this boundary to make sure that my wind with that northeast wind was blowing away from his nose. And then it pinched down. It makes like kind of an hourglass feature. And so at one point I was within like 200 yards of this buck bedded. And that's when I was crawling through those briars because he could, you know, see the other side of this bowl system. So I was, I was actually crawling through his bed on one of his beds that he uses on a West wind. Wow. So <laughs> yes. And I, and I have I, the thing about the way that I scout is I have every bed scouted throughout these areas and I pin them on my map. That way I know like if I need to traverse through these areas, what, what deer, you know, what, where they could possibly be bedded, whether it's does or the target buck or satellite deer. So what I was telling me because of the way that I've scouted and evolved throughout the years, what I was telling myself was, you know, based on the wind, he should not be in that bed. A five, six-year-old buck's not going to put himself at that disadvantage. At least in my head, that's what's going on, right? And so I'm going to trust this. I'm, I'm really going to trust my thought process. So I get to where his, one of his beds is for a west wind, and I'm crawling through these briars, and sure enough, I bump a deer. And it sounded like a pretty good deer running down through the bottom. 
and it ran right through the hub scrape that this buck was going to drop down to that night. And this is midday. Well, because I trust my process so much, I told myself, keep going, stay true to your path. That is not the buck you're after, even though it could have been right. But I'm telling myself it's not. You almost got to fool yourself a little bit, right? I call it putting on the face, like put on the, you know, just fake it till you make it kind of mentality (laughs) almost where you're just like, just keep going, keep hunting hard and do your thing. And I ended up going. So now I'm like directly west of this deer. I accessed from the north. I've got a northeast wind. So I would, if I could smell good enough, I could smell him. He, there's no way he can smell me in this point. Oh, so you're back west. So like, but I thought I'm trying to play it through my head here, but isn't the, like, isn't he facing West in his bed or no? He is facing West, which is why I'm crawling through those briars. Okay. So, and then the, the, is the, and I could be completely wrong in my head, but is the bottom of like the, the very bottom of the ditch, isn't that back East of him or no? No, that's to the west of him, to the east of me at this point. Okay, gotcha. So gotcha. he's so so the the bottom is actually in between us. So he would be like looking across this bowl feature. I gotcha. He is like on the other side of the bowl than you is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. On for the leeward side today. So on this like south-ish facing bowl. So I keep working south, and I had to get far enough away where he couldn't see me drop down the hill before I started coming back to that uh, scrape, which is what I was telling you earlier, which is what led me to that cliff. And it was cliffed out, and I found my way down it. And then uh, I had to get – I basically got on the edge of that, and I just sat down and listened for acorns. And as I was listening for acorns, you know, I'm taking in a lot of things. There's squirrels on one flat versus the other, which is making me think like, hey, the – the acorns are dropping here now and I'm listening to them. And this is the same flat that was hot a week ago, which I thought could have dried up, but it hadn't dried up yet. So I was listening for the last oak tree that I could hear dropping acorns. And I was glassing as far as I could to see where the squirrels were at, like how far up this finger of this ridge were they going? And I actually pinpointed it right to, like I could see acorns dropping and bouncing out of the hub scrape that I had a camera on that he was hitting. Really? Yeah, it was like, and I was like, that's it. Like, I have to make it to that point. And from my scouting, I knew that that was one of the first white oaks in that area in between his bed and that hub, which was roughly 80 yards. So this spot sets up kind of cool. And it's something I really look for where I have like a deep ditch that I can kind of use like the ridge as my cover. So if I was walking, he could see from like waist up. But if I duck down or if I crawl, I can access within... 12 to 15 yards of a lot of these scrapes that he's looking at all day. And I can climb up the backside of the tree high enough to be able to shoot that spot, which is exactly what I did. You know, I crawled up this drainage. I got to the backside of this big tree and I picked a big tree with no, it had no cover at all, but I picked a big tree so I could set up without, uh, you know, silhouetting myself. So he couldn't see me. And it just so happened to work out. I mean, that's a very risky situation, right? Like he could see my arm wrap around the tree. He could see anything. You could make one peep and then he's glued on your position. Uh, one thing I've started to do over the years is like I'll, as I, I'll hang off the side of a tree with my lineman's belt for, it could be an hour, an hour and a half sometimes because I'm, if when I'm that close to a buck, I try not to even set a stick or set my stand or my saddle platform or anything until I have some sort of cover noise. It could be a squirrel, it could be a jay, it could be a gust of wind. I'm trying to do anything I can to make sure that I'm masking that because just that 
I've had too many occasions where I make like a weird sound and I don't see a deer that night. And so I make sure that if I just went through all this effort that I'm not putting myself in that situation. So that's something I focus on. And I, I did the same thing. You know, I was on the side of the tree for a good bit of time, uh, got set up and it, it just so happened to work out. That's crazy, man. Because, you know, one thing that I've fought with personally is like when you get, when I'm doing a hanging hunt or whatever, and you get in and you're trying to like, if you go into a, an area, you've obviously scouted, but it's like something might be different. You might have to make a tweak, you know, on the fly. It's like, then you're looking for a tree and it's like, man, you know, and, and then in my head, it's like, you got to get up in the tree. You got to figure something out, hurry up. Like, you know what I mean? Like, to be able to slow the whole process down and really, like you said, it might take you an hour, you know, to hang a couple sticks. Like, how do you get to that point? Like, how do you train yourself? Are you, are you a pretty patient person, you know, no matter what? Or is it just like, you know, how do you get to that, that point, I guess? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So it's, it's funny. It actually started with something that I heard Dan say a long time ago. Uh, he was talking about like how he would be walking through some of these swamps or cattail marshes and he was really getting after it, right? Because you have to, to get out there and he would get out there. And when he was younger, he would like kind of fly into the spot and what he realized and what he started doing over time was slowing down. And he said the same thing. He's like, I'll get in here and I'll, I think he might've even said like, I'll sit down and you know, let my heart rate come down and then collect my thoughts and I'll move at a slower pace after that. Like I'm, I'm like giving my body an opportunity to catch up and relax and calm down before I start this last 50 yards or whatever it may be. And so that's something that I took. And then I started applying to my own practice and fine tuning it the way that I needed to for my approach. And on the flip side of that, once I had that knowledge of doing that, what I started putting in my head was like, I, I don't want to scout for 360 days a year and put all of this effort in, put all this gas mileage on my vehicle and run cameras and batteries and cards and glassing, you know, four or five nights a week and spending a ton of time in the woods just to blow it on the day that it counts. And so I'll, I'll just do everything in my power to make sure that that hunt goes absolutely as good as it can. And a lot of times that requires some, some really weird things, whether it be crawling or whether it be hanging off the side of a tree for a long time or whatever it may be. It does not, it does not, I'm not even concerned with that process. I'm so concerned with just do the best you can and work as hard as you can and do whatever it takes to just get in there and put yourself in the situation you need to like, don't, 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 slack now you put all the work in all year don't give up on your process on the only day that it really matters that you're out there to kill that deer yeah no that to makes total sense and you know i'm trying to speak you know ask the question for the guys that out there that are like well oh, you know but sometimes i might only get like an hour to hunt you know or what do you say to those guys that have that that you know obviously you can try to make time but like if there really is a guy that only might get two hours and 
you know, just to even have stand time a week or something like, what do you say to that guy to kind of combat that, like really slow the process down, but still get out of it what you want to get out of it? I think a big part of that's going to be fine tuning his approach to fit his, you know, his life. Um, I can't really answer that because I do have a lot of time and I work 12 hour shifts. So I do get those days off, which is nice. Like I can leave the house at 10 or 11 AM for the afternoon hunt. And I have all day to make that access and to make that route. And that's a really good point. You know, maybe not everybody has that amount of time. That's, that's my approach. That's the way that, you know, I've kind of fine tuned my life to give me those opportunities. Sure. Yep. Um, but if you don't have them, I mean, it's really going to come down to just finding a way to make your own situation work the best it can. And I don't think anybody's got the perfect situation, but you just have to roll with the punches and come up with your own process based on that. Yep. Taylor, tailor your process to, to what your time, you know, allots you to do. So I, I totally get that. Um, you know, you've got a, you've got a, a, a little baby or a year, almost a year and a half old. So how do you, you know, combat that as well. I mean, you get, I, I guess I should say first, are you a volume setter guy or are you more of like a, you know, I only might get 13, 14, 15 sits a year. Like, how do you play that? So I try to, uh, scout really hard on the days that I can and put myself in situations. So maybe I don't get stuck in like that grind every year. Like, last year I hunted three days for myself all year. Three um, days with a weapon in your hand? Yeah. Well, I went muzzleloader hunting in New York late season. But, okay. Um, but yeah, with a bow, three days. Holy cow. Um, so it just, like, but I scout really hard all year when I have more time. So I don't put myself in situations where I'm like sacrificing the family time. Or like I wake up every day at 3 or 3.30 before work to do some fitness things and things that I need to catch up on before I go to work. That way I can come home and spend time with the family. So I can, you know, I'll like wake up at three to shoot my bow. Yeah, I'm trying to just take sacrifices away from my sleep or things for me. That way I can still balance the family life and be a good dad and be present and all the things I need to be because that's very important to me. Um, so I try to work as hard as I can in the off season. So I don't have to be gone the whole month of November pursuing a deer. As much as I love that side of it too. And I love the grind side of it. I just, it's easier for me to flex throughout the year and pick like, let's say, you know, 15, 20 days throughout the 365 days as it, it's way easier to do that than it is say, okay, well, I'm going to be gone November 5th to November 25th. Right. Yep. No, I, I totally get that. You know, a couple of the spring scouts that I did this year were, you know, a buddy and I had leave the house at five 30 in the morning was still pitch black dark. And it's like, okay, we're going to go give it four hours. We got to be back by noon or so drive to some public and really grind it out and then be back at noon. Then you got the rest of the day, you know, it might be like a, like you could definitely make more time. And that's what I'm trying to transition to as well. And you hit the nail on the head, like getting into that grind life where it does get tiring in the fall. Like, you know, me being a, like I film and produce hunts. We were, you know, for the last 10 years with a camera in my hand, I was 60, 70 days in the field you know, and a lot of times that was 30, 40 at a time. And it was like, when I get back home around Thanksgiving, I am burnt out, man. I do not want to do anything. Like, I don't want to do any hunting things. And I, I like quickly, like got myself into a mode of like, you know, and I heard Andy talk about in a podcast is like, he scouts a ton. 
You know, he glasses a lot, you know, a lot more than what he does hunt with a weapon. And like the last two years, I was really trying to get into a little more of that and be more methodical. Last year, I had 13 sits and killed three bucks. And that's awesome, man. You know that's- how, and but you know, like I killed my third buck on November 2nd and I didn't hunt for like three, the, the three or four days after that, I was glassing every morning still. Like I was still glassing, seeing where the rut was at, you know, monitoring cameras, checking cameras, figuring out where I could get in. And then on like the ninth or 10th, I made a methodical, like, you know, shot in the dark and I had like another shooter buck come and I was 40 yards off of, of, of my setup. And then literally after that gun season starts and I, then I kind of, I shouldn't say I shut it down, but it's like, it gets really tough here in Michigan after that. So it's like, I just kind of let things play out the way, I don't know. It's, it's really weird, but you hit the nail on the head, man. Like do the work in the off season. And then, you know, it, it, it does feel weird when all your friends are like volume guys and they're hunting every night and they're like, why aren't you hunting? And I'm like, well, I, I guess I don't know. I don't, I don't need a hunt tonight. Like, you know what I mean? It, it feels weird, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. The thing about scouting, too, like glassing is a, a good example where, like, you can take the family glassing. And, like, I'll For go sure. get ice cream and, you know, we'll we'll make it like a family thing to go glass around and locate bucks. Um, I'll do that during season even in the right situation. Or a lot of times, you know, being a filmer, you probably understand this, but, like, I do want to capture them on film now. So a lot of times I'll scout in season without a weapon. Like I'll go out and put boots on the ground just like I would in the off season because I want to find like that perfect location or maybe I missed something or I want to check up on a ridge that shouldn't be hot but could be, but I can't find the buck I'm after, or, you know, whatever the case may be. So I just run out and I'm like, well, I'm, it's, a, it's a scouting mission. Like that's what I'm focused on and I'll hunt when I get my intel. I'm not going to go just like, throw sits at the wind that's i i like playing the chess game more than that okay th- that was gonna be my next question like if you don't have any good intel on a buck that you're trying to go after or you know you you've got a lot of spots that are are producing and you know how to work these spots in different situations so like are you throwing a sit at it even though you don't have any intel on a buck that might be there and just hoping or is it you have to have validation that a deer is in the area that you want to chase and then you're going to work that spot like how does that play out yeah for me it's evolved over the years now where i need that validation and like i'll i don't i don't hope at all when it comes to deer like i just don't have that in me but on the other side like i want to for me personally and i know this isn't everybody's situation is going to be different. But for me personally, like I really get the most joy out of my successful hunts when I had that Intel and I feel like I made that calculated decision as opposed to for lack of better terms, like got lucky on a deer. Like I just, I don't find the same satisfaction in that. Like to me, it's not about killing the deer, putting an arrow through the deer necessarily, but it's about like the whole process that got me there and like truly beating that animal in his own way just it, it does it for me that's what gets me fired up so i really like being able to play those moves and make those decisions and have the intel and then have my theory in my head as i go to access the spot with that whole like i'm killing tonight because he's in this bed and he's at this food source at 6 p.m and i'm gonna crawl up this ridge i'm gonna set up eye level with him as he drops down out of this briar patch i'm gonna shoot him like that's the kind of things that get me fired up so that's just what i'm focusing on and there's no right or wrong way that's that's just what gets me going, and that's that's what I love. Yeah, and you're almost like 
calling out plays, like football plays. Like he's going to, you know, <laughs> this pulling guard's going to come through here. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like when you were talking about that, it's almost like a, like a play. Like you're, you're playing it out in your head of how you envision it. And then you're executing on that. So, but you take it to a, a, a different level though, in my opinion. So for you to say that you only, last year, you only sat three times or you hunted three times, but like your your style is taking way longer than 97% of bow hunters out there, probably even more than that, because there's not a ton of guys I would, I would venture to say that might be leaving at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning and maybe getting an hour or two sit in the evening, like they're leaving their house and you know, you're leaving and like leaving the truck maybe at noon to make a walk that from A to B might take you what, you know, 20 minutes, but it's, it's taking you three hours to get in there. Like not a lot of guys are doing that. Yeah. And it's just, it's the whole process. And that's, (laughs) it just really comes back to like, I think when you, when you, at least for me, when I get it in my head and I'm that confident in like some of those situations where I can say, I think all these things are going to happen, whether that's going to or not, it just like makes me be like hyper-focused and have really good attention to detail. Like I'll pay attention to everything. I'll pay attention to, you know, like briars being nipped off or acorns being cracked or like this flat's got acorns all over it, but a bunch of them have holes in them. And so they're bugged out and there's no deer eating the buggy acorns or, you know, like all these different things on the way in or like last year, uh, I got to a really hot flat and I was, I stopped for a minute and I was looking at it and I was like, well, this is really hot right now, but my buck should be another mile from here. Even though this is his home range still, he shouldn't be here, but I had to really investigate that area to like, get it in my head that keep moving, like keep moving. He shouldn't be here because the wind's not right. And you know, this isn't setting up right. And this ag field on this side got cut. So you want to push further back in and try to catch him coming to the other one and all these different factors. But like, I need to give myself time to do that. And if I get in a situation where I'm rushing, I just, I would rather not even be out there necessarily because I don't feel like, I feel like I'm just going to make a mistake. Like I have to slow down and be methodical so I don't make mistakes because I make a lot of mistakes. And it seems like the faster I go and the more I speed up, it just increases the amount of mistakes that are happening. Yep. That, that makes total sense. Let's talk about some mistakes or failures. Like, you know, we started at the beginning of the podcast. The first question I got for you is what are one or two of your biggest lessons you've learned from the past failures, failures that you've, you know, that you've had that might've led to a success? You know what I mean? Like, so what are some of those biggest lessons you learned over some failures so one of them that really sticks out to me was my 2020 hunt um i was i scouted an area in the summertime i located a a giant deer i've talked about it on a couple podcasts now but i i don't know anywhere from 170 to low 80s typical 10 beautiful buck uh big wide you know really wide frame uh really tall tines he had super long beams and his tines were really spaced out so when he turned his head, it was like this big white rake on top of his head. I mean, he was, he was phenomenal. And, uh, I, I went in and I made a play on him and basically that, you know, I had a bunch of things happening in life and life got busy and, um, that caused me to make some mistakes because I didn't have my mind right going into this hunt. It caused me to just be lackadaisical. And what the mistake that cost me was, it was really just attention to detail. So 
generally before I go on a hunt that morning, I'll wake up. I know I'm going to hunt that day and I'm checking weather conditions and okay, you know, it's every hour it's going to be doing this. I've got multiple apps. I check, I'll check like, uh, the weather channel, like AccuWeather, Wonderground. I'll check windy or, uh, Venturi or like all these different Ventusky. Ventusky is what it is. All these different wind apps, whether it's a parasailing app or like a weather app to try to make sure that I'm looking at the currents that I want to be looking at throughout the day for every hour. And then I'll look at the temperature. I'll look at how it's going to drop. I'll look at specific wind shifts based on time when I think that's going to play differently into the thermals. And like, I'm, you know, basically calculating what I think is going to happen and the access I need to take into the spot. And is the buck going to be there? Is it going to be here? Do I need to target a different deer? Uh, you know, if he's better in this location, what food sources is going to be on and how did he access through that spot? Is he going to hit the secondary hub or the primary hub in daylight? Is the temperature going to factor into that at all? How close do I need to get to the bed? You know, I could go on for, for hours about all these different things that I'm factoring in. That's what I do when I have my coffee, when I wake up on hunt day is like start focusing. So that day I had a bunch of things going on. I crashed my Jeep the night before. I was a little bit beat up. Um, I had to go get a rental that morning, which caused me to rush a little bit, but I shouldn't have went in the woods if I wasn't, you know, if I wasn't paying attention to everything and I didn't have that attention to detail and he might be on the wall right now, if I would have just waited or just focused a little bit more, um, what ended up happening was I checked the wind on weather channel. Like I always do. And it said West wind, right? And it's okay. I'm good. West wind. Well, I just told you what I normally do where I check multiple apps for every hour. So now I know it's a West wind at some point in the day. Like that's the most consistent wind, but what's it going to do at five or six? Well, six o'clock, 6 PM, it was actually switching to a dead East wind. And if I would have looked at my app, it called for that. And I just was not paying attention. So here I go up in this drainage, right? I've got west wind perfect, wind's blowing my face, 8 to 10 miles an hour. It's a cooler day. I, you know, there's scrapes down this whole drainage on the way in. The food source is looking good. I'm fired up. I'm like, he's dead. Like, this deer's getting killed for sure. And uh, I go in, I get set up. I had a couple younger deer drop down. I actually made a post about the younger one a while back. But uh they drop down and I hear like thrashing up on the hillside and I look up and this big giant buck wide white frame buck has his antlers stuck in a, in a bush in like a briar patch. And he stood up out of his bed and got tangled up in it. And so he's ripping on this briar patch. I mean, it's, I just immediately start shaking because I don't even need my binos. I can just see a wall of tines, <laughs> you know, go swaying back and forth. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And I pull up my binos finally. I look at him and he turns his head and I see how wide he is. And he turns his body and starts walking right towards me. And I'm thinking, man, he's at, at this point, he's at like 80 or 90 yards. I'm like, this buck is getting smoked. Like he's dead. And uh, those younger deer like milling around down below on just some, just some brows. And uh, he's, he's coming in. He's at, you know, 75, 70, 65. 60 and he hits that 60 yard mark and I feel the wind on the back of my neck just you know my hair stands up and it just I was like what is that and that was that eastern wind that shifted that was running right up that drainage <sighs> right to that two-year-old eight points nose and he actually the doe blew out first and that eight point just I mean he caught right on and at the same time as when I was starting to slowly turn around to get you know I was in a saddle I was trying to get turned around 
Um, and as I was doing that, that two year old caught my wind and put his nose up and caught me moving. And I was like, I had the double whammy. Oh man. And so the two year olds looking at me at 25, the giant bucks looking at the two year old at 60 and we're in like this weird little standoff. Um, but my wind blew right up into there, even though I had perfect thermals, perfect wind all night that I was sitting in that tree and blew that buck out of the hillside. And, uh, out of my life that was oh, that was a hard no. lesson learned but the lesson learned there was really is i had the wind right i had the thermals right but it was an attention to detail thing that really cost me because if i would have paid attention i would have i would have not went in there i would have waited until the following night which was perfect conditions and went in and probably been really close to killing that deer that's crazy man you know with these examples you're talking about and you're talking about bucks dropping down. So are you, are you saying they're dropping down to the bottom of the ditch? Like where this, uh, you know, the, the main hub is at. Yes. Yep. And a lot of times I'm targeting them dropping down and this is based off of them betting up higher. Um, and that's really because I can, if I go up the drainage, the correct way with the wind blowing down it, my wind is basically good all day. And then when my wind starts to die down later in the night and it starts to get a little bit risky, I've got enough of an elevation drop coming out of those hills and then down through that drainage, there's enough elevation where it kind of just sucks my thermals down out of there enough to where I can get a shot on either the scrape or on like the secondary food source, which is in between his bed and that scrape. Like sometimes if I know my thermals are going to be weird, or the wind isn't going to be, it's going to be swirly in the bottom. I'll work my way towards the bed as much as I can, but that's situational on, is he bedded, you know, is it a four to, is it a four to 800 foot, uh, floor to ceiling? Is it, you know, zero to a thousand, like how tall is that Ridge too? And how far up can I work without him seeing me or anything else? Sure. Um, so it just depends on the situation, but yes, 99% of the time I'm targeting deer bedded up higher dropping down into the bottoms at night so and then are you i know it's situational based but are you typically trying to get to the bottom as well on that scrape or trying to get in between the scrape and his bed or a food source in his bed like how does that work so it depends on how far away it is from his bed so if the scrape is let's say 200 yards away from his bed i've got to go further i just don't feel like a mature buck is going to make that 200 yard jump very often in daylight. So I'll push closer. But if that scrape like last year is 80 yards from the bed, I just can't physically get any closer without bumping him right out of his bed right. when he can already, like he's already looking at that scrape all day. So in situ it's, it's situational. I like to be as close as I need to be. And I like to either be on the hub scrape if it's close enough or the, the first food source he's going to hit when he gets out of his bed. So not the destination for the night, but the first one, is that going to be a greenbrier patch or is it going to be a lone white Oak, a lone red Oak? Is it going to be a chestnut Oak? Is it going to be some sort of browse? I just want to make sure that he doesn't get hung up 50 yards away from me and I can't get a shot on him because I wasn't at the first food source that he hits. So that's very important to me. It's either hub scrape or first food source that he's going to hit that I can get to without spooking him out of his bed. I got you. And then typically, I mean, in these scenarios, where are you seeing these bucks? I mean, you set up high, like betting. Are they betting on the top of these hills? Because I know you're in hill country. So are you are they up on top of these hills or like a quarter of the way down or halfway down? Like I know it's very situational, but like typically 
you know, where do you see them mostly betting at? So the deer that I'm targeting are going to be different than the deer that I find total. I find deer bedded in the bottoms. I find them bedded in the bowls of the ridges, right on top of the points of the ridges, halfway down on a little flat. Uh, it could be out on a wide open point of a ridge. It's, it's going to be really situational. The ones that I'm targeting, I really like to focus on the ones that are bedded in like the upper third. Um, generally they're not going to be like right on the point of the ridge. The ones that I'm targeting, they're like off to the side of one of the sub ridges or they're going to be in the bowl more. So if you have a North South Ridge, you have two ridges that jut out to the East, you know how it creates like that little U and then up the top, you have the bowl with like the little hogs back. They'll bed like around that. Like it almost makes like a military crest in the bowl sometimes. And it'll be like a thick spot where there's like a, a seep or there's like a spring or something like that. So there's a little bit of like cover. I'll find them bedding in those sort of areas more often. Um, I'm really not targeting a whole lot of deer, like on the point of the Ridge, just because I don't find those really mature bucks on the point of the main Ridge very often. I'll find them on the point of some of these little sub ridges that are thick, but generally not on the point of the main Ridge. And I have before it's just, it depends on the situation. Okay. And then would you say with your camera locations in the summer, like going into season, you're obviously you've got them on the hub scrapes and the secondary scrapes and everything, but like, are you putting a lot of them on those food sources, those targeted food sources, those white oaks or red oaks or something like that? Like, is that typically where you're putting all your cameras? Not really. Most of them are focused on scrapes. So I would say that 90% of my cameras are on a form of a hub scrape this year, whether it's the primary or the secondary. And a lot of these systems will have like one primary and they'll have like four or five really good secondaries that are still being hit like almost daily or every couple of days by some of these deer. So that could, you know, one system could take up 10 cameras on scrapes if it's a thousand acre chunk with a lot of different topography and terrain features where there's like, let's say there's 15 bedding points or bowls And there's a bunch of clear cuts and there's a bunch of flats and, you know, it adds up quick. So I run a lot of cameras on those and then I will run some cameras on like a terrain feature in between their bed and what I think is going to be like that secondary food source just to see if I can catch them making that route a little bit more often. Generally, I don't focus on the, the destination food source at all. Like, I can't tell you the last time I hunted a destination food source or a big giant white oak flat or an ag field or anything. It's always these little, like, micro features. And I think there's something to be said about that where, you know, I'm not hunting the points of the main ridges or, like, the bulls of the main ridges. I'm trying to really focus on the ones that you sometimes you can't even see on a map where it's, like, these little secondary, like, hidden features where it might be a little tiny ridge or a little tiny bowl or, like, a little micro hub or a little oak flat, things like that. Like I try to stay away from the big obvious features as much as possible. And I might be missing out on opportunities. Like that's more than possible, but I, I do seem to find quite a few good ones on those, you know, smaller features that aren't as obvious. Yeah. It's funny that you talk about those micro features that you can't see them on a map because my Ohio buck when you go back and look at a map, you can't see it there. Like you have to, you have to get boots on the ground and like kind of almost kind of stumble upon it. Like there's, it's really weird that it's just 
you know, it looks like a, a big bowling ball landed in this spot and just flattened it out in between, you know, like with these two ditches coming down. And then there's like this big rock. It creates a big train feature. I mean, a huge rock. I call them Indian rocks. That's what I was told they are. But they're just giant, giant rocks that like you can't get around, you know, or you can't, you can't climb up them or nothing like that. And like when I went back and after the fact, because I went on, on like a scouting mission that I had known about this spot the year before. When I went in and scouted and found the sign, like I just walked up on it because I saw the the sign the year before on it, and I was just coming back as the first time I was. It it was a long story. Like I had, I I didn't plan on hunting Ohio. Then it was like a last minute thing, and then I went down there like I'm gonna go check this out and and found it. And then when I went back after I killed him and like really tried to figure out where the deer was coming from and why he was doing what he was doing, I always ask myself why. Like where was he coming from? Why was he in the bottom? And I'm like, this is the place where I killed him. Why doesn't it not look like there's a little bench here or something like that? And you just can't see it. It's crazy. Yeah. And it seems like I look for that every single year. Like if I can find one of those in all the scouting every year, when you find it, like at least for me, it, it almost hits you in the face. You're like, holy cow, oh, dude, it this. does. Like this, yeah. It's like you almost know immediately, like, I don't know if that's the spidey sense thing where over time you just figure it out and you know what to look for or what. But like last year when I found that spot, I killed mine. It like it hit me. I like a train almost. I was like, wow, I, oh, this is crazy. Like how could I not see this on a map? How is this here? Like holy cow. And it was, you know, he was, it was, he was hitting it all the time in daylight. And so, yeah, you find those spots like that and it's, uh, that's once you know you find one and it works and then you find another one and you have another good encounter and it's like okay there's something to this and then so that's what you start to find um and focus on and the other thing too is like you know saddles i've heard from older guys though back in the day saddles were awesome and the word about saddles got out right in the hill country to where a bunch of people started hunting saddles or like points of marshes or islands on marshes like from what I've heard, from what I've seen, a lot of those are getting a lot of pressure now, but they used to be really good. And I kind of feel the same way about hubs now. Like I go into hubs and a lot of times, like I might find a camera or I might find a, a ladder stand or I might find some boot tracks or anything else, but I'm not finding that stuff in those secondary, smaller, less visible features yet. And so that's what I start to focus on a little bit more. Not even to mention, like, say, like, okay, you're in a high-pressured area and somebody's hunting the main hub, but you're two or 300 yards away in the secondary hub, which is also another 300 yards closer to that buck's bed. Well, now you're in position to get the kill on that buck. Right. So, you know, like, just moving closer and finding those different features just seems to seems to help out and help, help combat some of that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Now, I want to go back to, like, some scouting real quick. So, if you're in the spring or let's just call it spring or summer, let's say you're going through an area and you find a hub scrape, okay? And you didn't know that was there, like this is new. You just stumbled upon it, like you're checking on an area. What's your process look like? Do you typically, okay, I got this hub. Okay, this is going to be a good area to target. Are you then looking for a food source? you know, in, in junction with this, or are you looking for another hub, secondary hub? Like how, what's your process when you find that hub scrape? So normally when I first locate the, the hub scrape like that, or that hub, and it has a scrape in it, normally I, I, I mark it down and I just start to try to like 
that's the beginning of the puzzle piece for me. Like that's the first puzzle piece. A lot of times I'm not even considering targeting that at that moment. Like I, I like this is here, but I, I can find better than this. Okay. And sometimes it does lead me right back to that hub again. Like that happens quite often. But normally I'm like, okay, this is the starting point. This is the foundation of what I'm looking for. Like the foundation of the tactic that I like to run in Hill Country is a hub where they drop down, they make a scrape, and they leave that area. So this is like without this hub, this isn't an area that I necessarily would target unless there was just, you know, I was after an astronomical deer or something like that. Like that's the style of hunting I like. So that's what I focus on. Um, so I'll find the hub. And I'll tell myself, okay, you know, find trails leading to and from it. What bedding points or bowls are going to be set up in this ridge system based on different wind directions. And I'll try to like look at my map and mark all that down. A lot of times I'll have this pre-marked and I just need validation of the main hub. And then it really, for me, is a matter of going boots on the ground, every ridge, every bowl, the side of every ridge, every trail, every little micro hub. Uh, every little flat spot, I'm looking for all the different food sources. I'm looking at all, any transition lines, whether it's a hard transition or a soft transition between like, let's say, uh, even oaks and like pines or something like that. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be a clear cut to hardwoods, like that hard of a transition. I'm just trying to cover all bases. Uh, a lot of times I'll go and look at the surrounding hubs as well, like go over the spine of that main ridge system and look at the other side just to see what the sign looks like or anything else, just to kind of verify for myself, like, okay, there's, you know, this many deer in this area, or there's these food sources that they could potentially be traveling to. And I'll try to just pin down every bed. Once I find beds, I'll actually get in them. I'll pull the hair out of the beds. I'll pull back the layers of leaves from past years to see how often it's used. I'll try to correlate if that bed was used that specific year based on food sources like uh, a good example of that is this spring, I had a ridge that ran north-south and it had ridges that jutted off to the east. And I was going down through them and a bunch of them had like clear-cut transitions on the ridge points. And so I was like, man, that that's setting up perfect for good bedding on those ridge points or in the little micro uh, bowls of those sub-ridges out on the end because of the fact that it's got good cover. And I went down to the first one it had really good bedding had awesome bedding on it. It had a white oak flat within a hundred yards. It had chestnut oaks nearby. The beds were hammered. They had hair on top of them. So I went to the next ridge system and there was another white oak flat there and there was a big red oak flat and the red oaks didn't drop very good, at least in my areas this past year. And I get out on the point of this ridge in this clear cut and there's all these areas on root wads that should have good beds. And I can tell that like there's old rubs and the trees nearby and stuff. Um, and it looks bucky to me. Like it just has that bucky feel, but there was no fresh beds. And then it clicked in my head. Okay. They weren't bedding on this ridge because there was no hot food here this year. The food source was the ridge to the South, the previous ridge that you were on. And that's why they were bedded there so heavily all year because the food kept them there. But don't let that fool you because this upcoming year, the ridge you're standing on right now, that looks B minus might be the hot ridge because the red oaks are good this year. Right. So you can't, you like you hit scouting is great, but you can't get too hung up on scouting. That's when the real time Intel really needs to take over. You want to have all the fundamentals and the foundations and the basis of these things covered, but you want every 
possible scenario and plan in case you have to divert based on a certain situation, whether it be pressure, switching food sources, you know, it could be a, a bunch of different things. With that being said, like that's a, that's a lot of, uh, homework. That's a lot of, you know, keeping it in the memory bank bank. Like, how do you, do you take a journal? Do you, you know, do you write all this stuff down? Like, how do you, uh, keep all this in line? I do. So I journal just about everything. Uh, I've journaled writing things down for a long time. I try to do most of it on my phone now. I've got a couple different apps for that. Um, on my Onyx points or on my Spartan Forge points, on my whatever app I'm using at the time, I've got a bunch of different apps with different maps that I like about them. The specific map that I'm using, I'll upload photos to those specific pins and I'll write down notes so I can understand things better and I can go back and look at them. I'll take pictures and log pictures in different files in my phone. I've got Excel spreadsheets for like specific deer and where I think they're betting based on food sources or based on uh, pressure, you know, different times of year. I'll also correlate that with any photos I get of them. So I've got like this, this entire thing going on. Um, and I do try to really focus on like one thing I've started to do more, at least in Ohio is focus on like five key spots and then I can kick one of those out if I need to, and then upgrade, like, let's say I kick number five out because I find a better spot spring scouting next year. And I'll kind of focus on that more, but I'll keep all the logs of those previous spots in case I like glass a good buck in the summer or something. And I can look back through my notes and say, okay, you know, this spot, had these beds here, had this buck that I had patterned for a couple of years that could be the one that I glassed. So I'm going to go take an op- I'm going to go either take a stab at that deer based on glassing him in a sighting, or I'm going to run in, throw some cameras in there and these spots that I already know are going to be pretty good to just to verify what he's doing. Um, you know, it's, it's a constant, it, it's a lot. Yeah. But that's, that's your process and that i mean everybody's process is different you know what i mean um your scouting is just you put your scouting is everybody else's basically hunting you know you are you're doing it kind of ass backwards and not not in a bad way but like that's how you're doing it you scout what probably over 300 days a year i'm gonna guess and then you're hunting maybe 20 let's just call it, it would that be a fair assumption I would say on the average year, yeah, I would say 250 to 300 to 10 to 20. Yeah. So like other guys are scouting maybe 10 to 20 and hunting, not 300, but you know what I mean? They're hunting, they're probably volume guys or they're getting out every weekend that they can. And, you know, they, it, it all equates like the same kind of thing. Like you're just getting all your work done early and during season and then just being methodical. Like you're, like on average, how many sits are you doing a year? You think? Man, I w- I had a really bad year in twenty twenty, and it took and that's that's the longest I've ever hunted, and it was twenty two. Twenty twenty two sits or like twenty two days? Yeah, you, okay, twenty two yep. twenty two sits. Yep. So like, in you know, there's I know a guy that literally has set up his job to hunt at least every evening, and then weekends he hits mornings and evenings every like every day. You know, and it's like he kills deer on sheer volume. Like he will kill a buck every year because of volume. I'm not a volume guy because like we talked about, you get in that grind, it might get a little bit like, man, the alarm goes off and you're like, I don't want to get up. 
Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You know, you got to you gotta keep it fresh and don't bring yourself out. That's why I've taken to, like, glassing in the mornings a lot, especially a lot of mine. I, I hunt a lot of farm country around here. So, like, glassing, in my opinion, is very, very a big de- a real big deal. You know, if you can glass them and figure them out and then just try to make a, a, a really educated move or, you know, surgical move, that's, I really like to do that process in farm country. Oh yeah. Yeah. I grew up hunting like a lot more farm country mixed with like rolling hills. And, uh, that was my thought process completely, you know, all summer, just glass, glass, glass. And then throughout season, glass, 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 and just try to make like that, that strike on that deer. Like I love that style of hunting too. There's just so many different ways to, to formulate your plan and like to acquire the data and the Intel that you need. That's, that's the awesome thing about it. And you know, like to go back to what you were saying about like doing it kind of, you know, ass backwards, it's, it's cool. And it's, you know, like that's the way that I've found to find the most enjoyment out of it. And some guys love the grind and they hunt hard and, you know, there's no right or wrong way. And that's, that's really important. Like I hope that nobody takes away from these podcasts or anything else. Like I got to go do exactly what he's doing to do this. Like, no, that's not the point. You're going to have your own, your own system. You're going to come up with your own plan. Like take little tidbits of information from all the different guys that you look up to or that you want to listen to or learn from and just formulate your own plan, whether that's hunting 50 days a year and scouting two or three or vice versa. You know, it's, that's the cool thing about it is there's no right or wrong answer. And there's thousands of different ways to be successful and to find enjoyment doing it. For sure, man. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. I do have one last question here before we do jump off this. I've got a question about like, you know, scrapes and mock scrapes and hub scrapes and everything is a big, big topic. When you're finding a hub scrape or if you know one is there, are you freshening that up at all or are you just leaving it be? So it's a new thing I've just started kind of testing out. Really this year, uh, in the past, I find these big hub scrapes that are natural and they're great. And I've just always had good success targeting those or like being really close based on that one scrape. I can kind of backtrack and figure out what I need to do. Um, this year I've taken a little bit different approach where I had some areas where I would have really good bedding and then they wouldn't necessarily have a scrape within a killable distance, but they would still have like the main hub scrape a few hundred yards away. And what I was doing in those spots is creating a mock scrape and then using uh Troy Pottinger has his own buck fever synthetic mix that he mixes up. And I got a hold of him and he sent me a, a spray bottle of that. And I put some of that out. So I'm really excited to see if that's going to work or not. Uh, come September when I pull my cameras, I've got a feeling it's going to. I've got a couple cell cams on top of ridges. And I've had pretty good success just based off of like those B minus areas making a mock scrape. And then it seems like what I've noticed so far, and obviously I'm no expert in this whatsoever. Like I'm the last guy to talk to about mock scrapes. But from what I'm seeing so far and what I've kind of learned from Troy and tried to basically test out this year is you can pull deer like 20, 50 yards from their regular travel route or their regular pattern to check a scrape. And that's what I'm trying to focus on is like have a bedding area, have a destination in mind, kind of figure out their travel route, find a way that they can only access that scrape from like a certain direction 
and then set up a mock. That way you can cheat that buck's wind or his thermals enough on that new travel route to get a shot at him. And like I said, I'm no expert whatsoever, but I've had decent success this summer on some of those cameras just in deer going over and checking that. You know, it, a couple of them are like even two, three times a week they're doing that right now. And so that's something that's really cool. And I'm kind of excited to check all those cameras in September. Yeah. And to, to go a little further on that, because I, you know, I've been talking to Troy a lot and I did some podcasts with him earlier and him and I talk off air and I've really grasped his style as well, because I just wanted something. I, I wanted it. Like you just said, you can pull a deer so far. Like I want to see if I could do that or if I could get a deer conditioned to an area that might not be, you know, might be his core area, might be on the very tip of where he might run. Um, I want to see if I can get condition him and kind of move him. And I've done that. Like I had a buck this summer so far that was just, he was, you know, he might show up once and then he'd be gone for like two weeks. And you're like, okay, was that just a deer just kind of doing you know, making a loop or, you know, did he find food somewhere else or whatever? And then he comes back and then he's here and here and here again, again, again. And I'm like, hmm, okay, either the shift is happening a little early or this scrape is is really made him like this area more. So that's like something I'm really trying to investigate. And that's why I asked about if you're freshening the scrapes up or if you're worried about scent or anything like that, or if you can condition a deer I firmly believe that you can condition a deer just depends on, you know, what kind of mood that deer has, like his demeanor and everything. And maybe, you know, maybe he just, you, you make him find something else that he likes. Do you see any of that? I I'm definitely excited to see, like, I just don't have the information yet to really speak too much on it. The one thing that I will say that I'm doing at least for right now is I have a lot of trust and belief and the natural scrapes that I found. And so I'm not doing anything to those. I really think that like, I don't want to introduce certain things to those yet because I don't know enough about it and I don't want to do something wrong, but I do like the idea of some of these mocks to, like you were saying, kind of pull them away from these specific areas. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'll be able to answer more on that hopefully at a later date there you go man well dude i greatly appreciate you coming on and doing this um hopefully we covered some things i know we talked about a ton and it's probably like i said it, when i get into host mode it's just like i got questions here i gotta ask and i you know i'm trying to visualize things so hopefully it wasn't copy and paste from everything else but hopefully i know there's some people that'll learn some stuff out of this and and uh dude if anything attention to detail and slow the f down is <laughs> something you can take from this and, and you know and just find out your process i think so thank you very much jake i appreciate it man yeah thanks aaron and uh thanks for listening guys i hope you have an awesome season be safe out there and enjoy it it's uh it's coming up quick and it should be a blast good luck heck yeah man good luck to you as well and uh hopefully we'll be talking soon again after you're gripping and grinning over this huge buck that you're probably going to kill what first first day second day maybe of october or season anyway (laughs) hey i'm not going to jinx it man but i hope the same for you (laughs) thanks man i appreciate it and also thank you for uh coming on and doing this again yep appreciate it man and there it is thank you jake very much man what an awesome awesome 
awesome interview. I love talking to Jake Bush. Such a good cat. So guys, please go check out Helix Broadheads, Latitude Outdoors, Exodus Trail Cams, Vector Arrows, and Garmin Bow Sights. Uh, support those that support me. That is always greatly appreciated. And thank you, thank you everybody out there that support me as well. That just listen every week and you know DM me and want to talk or ask questions and then keep doing that. I love it, guys. I love. If I haven't got back to you, I'm very sorry. I get quite a few DM DMs, so um, keep them coming though. I I really I really inter- I really like interacting with all you guys. So. Also, if you if you want to interact, go to iTunes and leave a five star rating. Go to Spotify, do the same. Leave a rating, leave a written review. It is always greatly appreciated. So, guys, thank you very much. We'll be coming at you here next week, like always. But be ready because I'm gonna start ramping up some podcasts as season starts here, and I'm gonna start getting a weapon in my hand. I got something in store. So, uh, yeah, be ready. Thank you guys very much. Don't forget, we'll be here. Be right here next week on the Fall Podcast. Thank you.